we continue to seek new good arms control. But part of that also has to entail not being a sucker for bad arms control. It is the week of July 20, and welcome to episode 34 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Dr. Chris Ford, Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation. At the State Department, Assistant Secretary Ford leads the interagency process on nonproliferation and manages global U.S. security policy principally in the areas of nonproliferation, arms control, regional security, and defense relations, and also arms transfers and security assistance. Previously, Assistant Secretary Ford served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation at the National Security Council and in Congress on the Senate Committee on Appropriations, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, and the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. Assistant Secretary Ford, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Les. There's a lot of stir in arms control right now. Let's talk about letting go of things past. Last year, President Trump pulled the United States out of the INF Treaty, citing Russian violations. A couple months ago, the president announced that the U.S. would begin the process of withdrawing from the Open Skies Treaty. Russia, of course, was also not complying with key aspects of that agreement. Can you talk about these decisions that were made by the administration and what your role was in them? My role has changed since well, over the period that I had been at the State Department. When I came to the department, I came as the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Security and Non-Proliferation. That bureau does not deal with arms control treaties proper, which is the purview of the Arms Control Verification and Compliance Bureau, although I did do a tour there in a previous life, but that's a different story. In October, my boss, the Undersecretary, left, and Secretary Pompeo saw fit to delegate to me the responsibilities of fulfilling the Undersecretary's role. And so in that capacity, the ABC Bureau, the Arms Control people, do report to me, and we have been engaged in the aftermath of, uh, of INF and, uh, and in the Open Skies decisions since that point. What have you seen as the fallout with our friends in Europe allies, friends, what has their reaction been to the administration's decisions in these two cases? Well, I would say in INF, our allies and partners in Europe were very understanding and supportive of our decision to withdraw. They had been, as we all were, painfully aware of the long and extended, protracted diplomatic engagements that U.S. diplomats had had with the Russians ever since compliance concerns first started to be raised with Moscow under INF back in 2013. We've had any number of engagements directly with the Russians, bilaterally, multilaterally, through the Special Verification Commission that was set up under that treaty. And our allies were there you know, watching all of this and indeed in some respects involved in many of these engagements with the Russians um, all the way along. And they fully appreciated every single turn. Russia had refused to change course. And over the course of these efforts to voice compliance concerns and persuade Russia to change course, Moscow had gone from what was initially simply illegal flight testing to actual production and uh, initial operational capability, and then ultimately to increasingly great degrees of deployment of their illegal 9M729 missile. So European allies saw this, they were on board the whole fashion, and it was very clear to them that, that Russian behavior had brought us to this juncture and they were supportive of our decision. On Open Skies, much more recent story, I would say our allies and partners are also painfully aware of Russia's history of non-compliance there. This is a context in which Russia has violated the Open Skies Treaty in various different ways, but essentially continuously since the treaty came into force in 2002. We've documented all of that in our compliance reports over the years, and our allies and partners have been very much aware 
aware of this sort of shifting kaleidoscope of Russian violations all along. They are also, I'm sure, painfully aware of the ways in which Russia has tried to use implementation of the treaty as a way to support its propaganda narratives, justifying regional aggression. I mean, pretending, for example, that the Russian-occupied puppet governments that it carved out of Georgia in 2008 are independent states and therefore fall under different uh, border flight rules, for example, under the treaty, which is which is illegal under the treaty, but it hasn't stopped the Russians from trying to use that. And also more recently, in addition to that, uh, using airfield designations to try to support uh, regional aggression narratives against Ukraine, trying to claim that airfields in Crimea are in fact airfields in Russia for purposes of uh, open skies implementation. So our allies are very aware of that as well. And they are certainly aware of our concerns that Russia may also, on top of all that, be using open skies collection in support of its emerging strategy of targeting critical infrastructure uh, in the West with precision-guided conventional missiles. So I'm sure there are allies and partners who wish that we had made a different decision with regard to withdrawing. But in terms of the fact that it is Russian behavior that has brought everyone to this point, I don't think you'd find much disagreement. In terms of those two decisions, as you noted, the series of violations by the Russians is lengthy and profound and not really in dispute. Everyone seems to agree that the Russians were were not holding up their end of the bargains, as it were. And yet there's still this argument in the U.S. in the policymaking community and in, shall we say, the advocacy community that it's a mistake to leave those agreements even though the other side of them is in violation. How do you understand the logic of that argument? The argument that I have heard made is that the Open Skies Treaty is intended to be a confidence-building agreement and that it still, in some people's view, still provides enough of that value to justify remaining in it, notwithstanding the egregiousness of what the Russians have been doing. We have a slightly different take on that, obviously. In our view, leaving aside even the other problems that I mentioned, using imagery for targeting, which, by the way, is not permitted by the, the treaty, it makes very clear that one must use imagery from Open Skies for purposes that are consistent with the purpose of the treaty. I'm guessing that uh, you know a confidence-building treaty is probably not designed to support warfighting targeting. But but leaving that aside and leaving aside the egregiousness of these sort of regional aggression narratives, um, even on the point of Russian compliance on its own terms, our view is that Russia has indeed gravely undermined the confidence-building purposes of the treaty. I mean, this is a treaty, the basic idea of which was articulated first by President Eisenhower back in the 50s, and it took years and years and years to make it a reality. But the basic idea was that the sides in the Cold War would be able to build confidence with each other by, in effect, sending the signal that they have nothing to hide. I mean, if I say that, uh, you know, Les, you can overfly me anytime, anywhere, and I pledge and do honor my commitment to allow you to do that, that does send, uh, you know, some degree of signal of confidence. The problem, of course, is that Russian behavior ever since this treaty came into force in 2002 has been more along the lines of, don't worry, you can fly anywhere, anytime you like, unless there's something I don't want you to fly over. And that's not a confidence-building signal. That's quite the contrary. That is a signal that you actually do have something to hide. And sending that signal while ignoring legal obligations and showing that you don't care about legal obligations and regard them as something more akin to options, you know, that strikes to our eye directly at the confidence-building part of the treaty. Yeah, it seems to me if you, as a person who cares about U.S. national interest and our values, and you want to see those interests and values advanced through diplomacy in international agreements, you would want the U.S. to be in agreements that are adhered to by both sides or all of the parties that are involved. And that when you see the other parties not 
complying with the things that they need to comply with, that agreement should be treated in a way that is very different than other agreements. In other words, you should leave them or in some way sanction that type of behavior so that you maintain the ability of the U.S. to act diplomatically to advance its interests. It seems counterproductive to me for those who care about arms control to support U.S. involvement in agreements in which Russia or whoever the other party or parties happens to be is not complying. It seems self-defeating. You won't get much argument from me on that. Um, I think we've demonstrated our bona fides of simultaneously seeking good arms control, and perhaps we can talk about that in a minute, but also being willing to walk away from bad arms control. I don't value agreements for their own sake. I value them for what they can do. Uh, and I'm enough of a believer in what in the ability of arms control potentially to do great good that I and we continue to seek new good arms control. But part of that also has to entail not being a sucker for bad arms control. And I think we are trying to strike that balance, but not everyone does. So I watched you in an interview with another think tank discuss what Plutarch's views of arms control might be. Can you tell our audience what your take on Plutarch might be in this situation? I will have to begin with apologies to any true Plutarch scholar out there, since I'm not one, um, but also with the caveat that, uh, you know, clearly avoiding nuclear Armageddon was probably not on his to-do list back in the first century. But that said, I've always thought it uh, a really interesting point to remember in these kinds of modern day policy debates. Uh, his advice about telling a true friend from someone who isn't, but in, in his characterization, a true friend is someone who doesn't just tell you what you like to hear. That's a sycophant or a flatterer, if you will. Uh, a true friend tells you what you need to hear. That's part of being a true friend. And I would say that uh, you know what we've been trying to do is be a true friend to arms control. We don't want agreements for agreements sake. We are clearly willing to walk away from things if they're being egregiously violated by the other side, um, or if they have ceased to perform the good that they were designed to do. And we're also seeking to get into good ones and to make arms control agreements where we can that are effectively verifiable, that the other side complies with, and that ultimately serve our, our security interests. And so I regard that as being both aspects of that as being part of being a true friend to arms control. And if you're just in the business of agreeing to agreements for their own sake and sticking in them no matter what the other side does, you're not a true friend to arms control. I would regard that as being a sort of a weird sycophant to arms control, and that's not where we're willing to go. We were colleagues of a kind in the Senate. We were working on uh, different committee staffs, but we intersected a little bit. And I've always been mindful of the Senate role, as described in the Constitution, in international agreements, which, as the founders wrote and imagined, was a role of advice and consent as manifest in the ratification process, two-thirds of the Senate needing to agree to any treaty. Of course, in the modern-day world, we have all kinds of agreements between the U.S. and other countries, many of which do not make it to the treaty threshold. In other words, they're of a type that doesn't need to be approved by the Senate under the Constitution. You've been in a variety of different positions in the U.S. government. Sitting where you are now, what is your thought about the value of an international agreement that has gone through the Senate approval process? Does that give it added legitimacy in politics, in security, in the way we conduct our affairs? I think it does. And I can see arguments. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of trade-offs. Shortly after you left, I was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff as well. And I would dare say we both have a pretty keen appreciation for how challenging it can be to get through those hurdles of supermajority voting. You know, And there's certainly a long history of agreements going to the U.S. Senate uh, and not getting that 
approval. And everyone's aware of that. So uh, it's for that reason, I'm sure that presidents have often been tempted to try to see if there are other ways to get <laughs> agreements in place that don't require jumping over those big hurdles. The other side of it, though, is that you get a lot of bang for the buck of that kind of legislative buy-in and legal impact. You know, under our constitution, treaties thus ratified become the law of the land. Uh, that's not a trivial thing. And by virtue of having gotten there, you can't get across that finish line unless you have a very significant number of legislators in support of that kind of thing. And so I think the ratification process provides a very powerful tool when you can do it for you know, ensuring legislative buy-in and for creating real legal impact uh, in ways that it's not possible to do, even where there are, to some degree, legally binding executive agreements possible. It's just a very different sort of beast. And so I guess it depends on what you want to do and what the circumstances are. I think the gold standard, if you will, is to, is to have something be fully uh, ratified, as you say. That is hard to do, and presidents frequently, you know, sort of deliberately stop short of that as a way of trading off equities. But uh, so you've got sort of two asymptotic cases. On the one hand, you've got you know, a fully ratified treaty. On the other hand, you've got something like the JCPOA, uh, which, you know, on its own terms, wasn't even an agreement. It styled itself a plan of action, whatever that is. And I don't think it was actually signed by anyone. While it may have been arguably politically binding, whatever that means, it clearly didn't have any particular legal status. And so, so between those two polls, you have a range of options and, uh, you know, everybody tries to make the best choices they can along that continuum. But I absolutely take your point that the gold standard of both legal and political impact, and I would say staying power, um, is from a treaty that is uh, fully and formally ratified. So let's talk about the future of arms control, maybe the immediate future. The administration has been giving indications that one of the things that it's thinking about, and perhaps you're a part of this, is to recraft the New START nuclear arms agreement to include China. Of course, it is not currently party to the agreement between the U.S. and Russia. What can you say about that possibility and whether that's a realistic hope for the next version of that agreement? I would qualify your description slightly. Uh, we're not seeking to sort of, you know, open up New START and renegotiate it with more parties. Uh, what we are seeking is an agreement to follow New START of some sort that will handle more challenges better and uh, covering more countries and more systems than New START does. Um, and we've been very clear publicly about there being essentially sort of four pieces on the need to do list. The first being, of course, to cover what New START currently covers. So at whatever point New START expires, we would need to have some answer to the challenge of constraining Russia's strategic systems that are currently covered by New START. The second piece is that we need there to be some answer to the problem of Russia's non-strategic weaponry. They have a very sizable arsenal of non-strategic nuclear weapons, much, much larger than our own, and they're on track to increase it still further in the years ahead. And it's been clear ever since New START was itself ratified that some answer needs to be found providing an arms control answer to that problem from our perspective. So that's the second piece. The third piece is to make sure that things that are strategic but fall outside the definitions of what is covered, for example, by New START, are also somehow encompassed in a new arms control framework. And that goes specifically to this challenge of these sort of weird and sort of dangerous and sometimes apparently dysfunctional weapon systems that the Russians have been bragging about building, such as the nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed cruise missile, sort of the, the road mobile Chernobyl, as some have called it, the one that had that criticality accident up in the northern waters uh, a, a while ago. There's also that underwater, the nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed uh, drone thing that is essentially a way to create giant radioactive tsunamis in somebody's port. I mean, this stuff is sort of nuts, but if they're going to build this, it absolutely needs to be covered by some future strategic arrangement. 
that's sort of a third piece. And those are all just the Russia pieces. And that brings me to my fourth point. And that is, of course, that we need to somehow cover any and all analogous systems that the Chinese may have. China currently is constrained in no way whatsoever by any kind of arms control agreement. And it's furiously building up the size of its arsenal and diversifying the range of its delivery systems in ways that clearly are becoming extremely problematic. And so we think that a new agreement needs to cover all of those bases. Uh, and in order to ensure that it does that and to try to bring these negotiations to fruition, the president has appointed a new special presidential envoy um, to deal with precisely these negotiating challenges. And uh, he's uh, hard at work trying to make this come true. So Chris, I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing about China and its foreign policy. You wrote a very long book called China Looks to the West. Given all of the work that you've done on that, can you talk about whether you think the situation is right right now for China to be part of an agreement with the United States and perhaps with Russia? Or do certain things need to change? In other words, could we go forward now or do we need to kind of change the predicate for a nuclear agreement with China? Well, I'll leave those questions to Marshall Billingsley, who is our special presidential envoy and who has been working very hard to try to get China involved in these kinds of discussions. This is not an easy thing to do. They have been, at least so far, um, fairly public about their disinterest. But we also hope and think that it, uh, it both is in China's strategic interest and that China understands it to be in China's strategic interest not to be in the kind of unconstrained arms race that their very actions, along with those of the Russians, threaten to trigger. It's a long road that we traveled with our Soviet and then Russian counterparts to get to the comfort levels with arms control agreements in the first place, with verification measures and transparency and confidence building measures. But there's a long history to draw upon between Washington and Moscow. And we don't have to reinvent that wheel from scratch uh, at this point in the modern era. And with a bit of luck, uh, we'll be uh, able to have conversations with Chinese counterparts uh, about what to do next to keep this thing from spiraling entirely out of control. Feel free to say that this isn't in your portfolio necessarily, although I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say, but is in the cyber realm, various cyber defense needs of the United States. There are bad actors out there. Some are state actors, some are non-state actors. We've had issues with Russia and with China. Is the cyber realm an appropriate place for an arms control agreement? And what kind of thinking have you done about that issue? Well, in my own view, it is not a domain that is at the moment suited to a sort of traditional type of arms control. There are efforts out there that the Chinese and the Russians have been pushing, but when it comes down to actually trying to approach this, and those are not very good ones, by the way, you'll be shocked that I think that. But when it comes to trying to use traditional kind of rule prohibitory approaches to arms control, I don't think the cyber realm makes a lot of sense, in part because the technology is so fast moving, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to adequately describe you know, what a cyber weapon actually would be and how to distinguish it from other things that go on in the cyber arena that one wouldn't necessarily wish to be prohibiting. And whatever definition you came up with, I would imagine that clever coders would be working around it about five minutes or 10 minutes later, maybe 15 at the outside. So it's not really well adapted to that kind kind of define the bad thing and prohibit the bad thing uh, approach that is so intuitively obviously part of the arms control lexicon. That said, there's a lot of good work that can be done and indeed has been done in approaching this in a, not so much in a legally binding way, but through the prism of trying to come up with agreed understandings of what responsible behavior in cyberspace. There have been a number of groups of governmental experts over the last few years, which have done some really good work in identifying and articulating principles of what it means to be a responsible cyber actor, or what rules apply in cyberspace. To articulate the fact, for example, that in a cyber war, whatever you, you know, so if you're actually crossing into something equivalent of, to armed conflict, the principles of necessity and proportionality and distinction and humanity, that they also apply in the cyber domain, just as they apply in the air 
or at sea or on the, on the ground. And being able to say that is not a trivial thing at all, because what it means is that cyberspace is not a lawless, non-rule-governed space at all. It is one, I mean, granted, it may be difficult in certain circumstances to apply those principles in cyberspace, but they're not exactly easy on the ground either. But that doesn't make international law and the law of armed conflict valueless in traditional warfare. So we've had some great success over the last decade or so in articulating the principle that cyberspace is a rule-governed territory, even if it is sometimes difficult to apply those things as operational law questions uh, always are. We've also had some luck in articulating norms of responsible behavior in peacetime, such as, well, don't attack civilian critical infrastructure in peacetime. And groups of governmental experts, including Russians and Chinese, uh, though they've been dragged kicking and screaming to this in some cases, but we've had a lot of progress in articulating those kinds of norms of behavior. And that's important, not because they're legally binding, they aren't technically legally binding, but because it gives the rest of the world a standard to hold people to. And when you see someone doing something that represents clearly irresponsible behavior, that very articulation of the right approach becomes the crystal around which can congeal a diplomatic or other sorts of responses. And that contributes to cyber deterrence as well as to you know, sort of solidifying norms of responsibility there. So we've actually done a fair amount of that in cyber and we're looking to do more of it in outer space as well. And it's sort of an alternative complement to traditional approaches and especially in places like cyber where traditional sort of rule prohibitory approaches don't really feel like they make a lot of sense. At this time, these kinds of normative ones are, I think, really valuable, and we're, we're trying to continue to advance. One of the other high-tech areas, non-nuclear high-tech areas people have been talking about as a possible subject for arms control or some kind of agreement is hypersonic weapons, uh, which are highly kinetic devices that could act very quickly, seemingly very expensive. Is that a possible area for future arms control agreements? And if so, how would you how would you have a verification regime for something like that? Hard question. I probably shouldn't speculate too much on that. Uh, one of the questions that is uh, you know, sort of before us in a sense now in the strategic arms arena is uh, applicability of New START, for example, to uh, a Russian hypersonic system that they have declared. That seems to be to a degree covered. There's a broader series of questions about other applications of hypersonic technology. I don't have a lot to sort of say in this kind of a forum, but uh, but certainly these are interesting questions and uh, we will need to be struggling with at least some of these uh, in the, the months and years ahead. So Chris, now that you've been in the executive branch at a fairly high level for a while, kind of seen the inner workings of policymaking at the State Department, if you went back to the Hill now, potentially as a member of Congress or as a, a committee staffer with some important portfolio, how would you treat things differently? Do you think you've learned anything in the last few years that would make you a better advocate for oversight and accountability? Wow, tough question. Um, I'm sure I have. I'll stick to the more concrete couple of ideas. I think if I were to somehow go back to the Hill, for example, as a staffer at this point, I would bring with me an ever more acute appreciation for the ways in which the, the many and sometimes uh, duplicative congressional reporting requirements actually sometimes make it hard for the national security professionals in our bureaucracy to, to do their primary jobs of uh, trying to keep the American people safe and secure and advance our interests overseas. I also fully appreciate the importance uh, as a former staffer already of ensuring that Congress gets the information that it needs in order to do oversight. But I have to think that there's a, a better spot we can find, a better Aristotelian mean, if you will, that allows Congress to get what it needs, but without quite the degree of, of impact upon day-to-day -day operations that congressional reporting sometimes can impose. I imagine there must be some way to consolidate and streamline and, uh, and work out an approach that makes more sense. In, in that respect. And I guess I would say, and I have to be a little careful here, but say a similar point about 
uh, things like restrictions on waiver authority and statutory policy restrictions. I go back in the Senate to my first days there to the 90s and the days of Bill Clinton's infamous comment about fudging intelligence assessments in order to avoid mandatory sanctions under the Arms Export Control Act. I was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff much more recently during a period also when many of its members, I think, felt rather badly burned by President Obama's choice to use what we had all thought was kind of a case-by-case waiver authority in order to sweep entire categories of sanctions off the books in the JCPOA context. And so I fully appreciate the need to avoid, and I hope you don't get in trouble for this, but to avoid utterly untrammeled executive branch discretion because there it can be abused and has been abused in the past. But with this being my second tour at the Department of State, it is also the case that we try to do good policy and achieve good outcomes for the American people. And oftentimes that requires a degree of flexibility to turn some pressure up, to turn some pressure down as circumstances demand. Uh, and that is extraordinarily hard to do when one is wrapped round by you know, barbed wire fences and moats and landmines of statutory restrictions. And this is where it sort of feels like there has to be an Aristotelian mean there too. You know, Just like uh, courage, according to Aristotle, is, is something you find in between the, the poles of, of cowardice and recklessness. It's neither one of those things, clearly. It's something else in the middle between them. I think these coordinate branches need to approach these kinds of questions as adults and in good faith and try to find that kind of Goldilocks spot in the middle and need to be willing to revisit where that spot is over time because circumstances will change. You know, I say this both from an executive branch and a congressional perspective. We have not always done that good faith engagement with each other as well as we might. And I like to think that I would come back as a staffer if I did with much more of that uh, perspective in mind and uh, with a bit of luck have people on the executive branch side at the time who are willing to engage similarly in such a good faith effort to find the right answer. So we've covered both Roman and Greek great minds. We've had a great diversity of thought here in this conversation. Chris, thanks a lot. This has really been terrific. We appreciate your time and we wish you and your colleagues all the best there in the State Department and hope you guys are very successful on behalf of our country. Thanks very much, Les. It's a pleasure talking with you and uh, uh, looking forward to to keeping up as this goes forward and perhaps uh, not necessarily by video link next time. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, John Hoffman for research assistance, and our producer and director, Grant Haver, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.